Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. Welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. Just a friendly reminder, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But if you want to do something nice, you want to help us out, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots in. Well, I had the fortunate pleasure of staying home from work today. It was nice. We had a little bit of a snow day here in Northern Virginia, and if it snows more than an inch or two, that means they close everything down. So it was kind of nice being able to catch up on the podcast, line up a few guests I've been meaning to connect with. I'm pretty excited about some of the upcoming interviews we have scheduled. Had some really, really good interviews last week. I can't wait to share those with everybody, but... Being home today also gave me a chance to kind of catch up on some hockey news and see what was going on in the hockey world. And oh my God, I couldn't believe what I came across in USA Today. Yermer Yager is still playing. He's like 46 years old. He's still playing. He's playing over in the Czech League right now. He played like 18 minutes during a game. Guy's unbelievable. He's a freak of nature. I was five years old when he first came to play in the NHL. Five years old. And he's still doing it today. It's incredible. I had the pleasure of meeting Yarmir probably 15, 16 years ago. I was a senior in high school, and he had just been traded to the Washington Capitals, and they did this big event at Dulles uh, Airport, which is probably, you know, it was probably 30 minutes from me, and I just got my license, and we went there because it was welcome Yarmir to town, and it was this big thing, and by big thing, I mean there might have been 50 or 60 people there. But it was cool. I, uh, the local DJ was giving out jerseys. I got a Yermer Yager Caps jersey, the old black one that had the dome on the front and the gold number 68 on the back and got to meet Yarmer, which was kind of nice for me. And I'd love to say that he was as nice as could be, but I barely talked to him. And from ever, all things I've heard, he wasn't the greatest guy in Washington. But since then, I've had several friends meet him or run into him and they said he couldn't have been nicer. So uh, congrats to Yarmer, man. Still kicking and still playing uh, all the way into his late 40s. It's awesome. I love it. Speaking of guys, I also love everybody knows I'm a huge Scott Hartnell fan. And if you don't know, I'm telling you now for the first time. Actually, let's rewind that because I don't think I've actually mentioned that on the podcast before. So you probably don't know. But okay, I'm a huge Scott Hartnell fan there. It's out there now. I've said it. Anyways, I saw he just got picked up by the NHL network. So I'm looking forward to seeing him behind the desk doing coverage. I think he'll be a really good analyst. He's got a lot of personality and those guys tend to do pretty well. On to this week's episode, though, John O'Grodnick joins us for part two of his interview about the 84-85 Detroit Red Wings season, and we dive into stories about Ron Dugay. We talk about the generosity of the Ilch family. We also talk a lot about some fights that took place in the 80s that he necessarily wasn't involved in, but he was on the ice for, and I found that stuff pretty fascinating. If you're a Red Wings fan, of course, he talks about Joey Kosher and some other incidents that he witnessed, so some pretty fascinating stuff. Talks about a real big, like a line brawl they had against the Minnesota North Stars. I guess Dino Cicerelli was involved. He goes more into it in the interview. One thing that didn't get picked up in the interview, but we talked about off-air, was players that he played with that he really had good chemistry with. Because he even said it himself, he said, Steve Eiserman's a great player. We just didn't have the greatest chemistry. He talked about that in part one. And that's not knocking Steve or John for that matter. They're just some guys you have good chemistry with and some guys you don't. So I asked him off air. I said, who did you think you had the best chemistry with? And his answer kind of surprised me. And this is not an insult to this player, 
But normally when I ask people who they have great chemistry with or who constantly is somebody that's always passed first, you kind of hear the same guys. Adam Oates, that guy named Gretzky, and of course, more current players like Nick Backstrom, Sidney Crosby. John O'Gronick told me that the guy that dished him the puck the most and he had the most chemistry with was a guy named Kevin Miller. Of course, for those that know, Kevin played for the New York Rangers, which is when him and John played together. He also played for the Detroit Red Wings and a few other teams. And I said to John, I said, John, that's not a name I was expecting you to say. And he said, Brett, let me tell you, I'm telling you that guy could pass the puck and dish just as good as anybody. Thought that was pretty cool and not something I'd really heard before. Definitely want to hear more about Kevin Miller now, especially after hearing about John talk about him. Anyways, let's go ahead and cut to our interview with John O'Grodnick for part two of the 84-85 season of the Detroit Red Wings. October 12th, opening night against the Hawks. The Hawks and the Wings rivalry is one of the most historical rivalries in the NHL. Hawks end up winning this game 7-3. to For guys like me that never got to go to the Chicago Stadium, can you describe that building? Oh, the old building was amazing, you know, and they had that organ player in there and, um, you know, a lot of history in that building. And, and during the national anthem, it got so loud in there with the fans and everything like that and the organ player and all that. It was it was unbelievable, you know. And, and the thing with the Blackhawks was uh, our game plan was because they came out like a bat out of hell. If you could hold them off for the first 10 minutes of the game, then you had a good chance of winning the game. But they came, always came out very, very hard and uh, with a lot of pressure and a lot of uh, emotion, I guess, or whatever, maybe from the organ player in the crowd and whatever. But like I said, if you could withstand the first 10 minutes, you know, then the pace would get back down to normal. And the thing with the Chicago Stadium also was similar to the Boston Gardens. There was just no room in between the blue lines and the neutral zone. So there wasn't a lot of room there. So when you got the puck, you had to know right away what you're going to do with it because there wasn't a lot of room out there. And we obviously we obviously had the red line back then, so it wasn't like you could make a. Oh my God, the know. two line pass probably killed you, and they had so much offensive talent. Oh, I mean, yeah. they had Denny Savard, they had, they had uh, yeah. Olsic at that. God, I mean, I'm looking. They had Sutter, I think. Yeah. Yep. Eventually, Daryl Sittler ends up. Yeah, there's, okay, there's a, yeah. So there's a guy that would stand out was Denny Savard. I mean, this guy could turn on a dime. He do this, all that stuff, and whatever. Like he was pretty excited, very exciting to watch. But go ahead. Oh no, that uh, was funny. On the la- you play the playoffs. That was going to be my last question. Was how do you stop Denny Savard? Because he could spin, he could move, he could do everything. Well, the thing is, what you try and do is, I know at home you have, uh, you know, you get the last change. Right. On the road, you'd have to change on the goal on on the fly, real quick. But I really, for the most part. Most of the time, we didn't really, you know, we, we didn't match up his lines, you know, because we try and get our checking line out there to play against Danny Savard. Mm-hmm. So that's a question you have to talk to these guys about. Um, but, you know, it had to be, you know, I mean, he's he's a tough guy to stop, you know what I'm saying? Because he had the speed. He could turn on a dime. He could do that spinorama move. He could do it. He was just quick, quick, quick. And, you know, to be a checker and uh, stay with them, you know, there's a lot of times when I had a checker on me, they really don't do anything except follow you around the ice. You know what I'm saying? They're just like mosquitoes, uh, yeah. They just stick to you. Yeah, they just, and that's their job, you know what I'm saying, to follow you around and kind of stick you once in a while and whatever, you know, get you off your game. And um, so I'm trying to think, yeah, you know, whether, you know, somebody like Dwight Foster or whoever was their checking center, Rice or Sean Burr, that was your job. You know what, just stay stay all over Denny Savard, you know what I'm saying, and keep him from, you know, taking control of the game, so to speak. Daryl Sittler ends up reporting to the team finally, and he's playing on a line with you and Lane Lambert. When a guy like Daryl Sittler 
comes back after holding out. Is there ever any tension between him and the rest of the team? I don't think so. Okay. I mean, I never thought twice of it. Okay. You know, it's strictly business. It's strictly business. I don't know how the other guys felt. You know, and I really didn't talk about it or anything like that with other guys sure. and stuff like that. But no, it's business. I mean, you know, if anything, I was probably anxious to have him come over here because, like I said, he's a big hero of mine growing up. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. He's a hell of a hockey player. Yeah. And quite frankly, he's a, you know, I, I, my opinion is he's a first-class individual. He's oh, is he? treated me very well. Speaks very well. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's good to hear. Yeah. Speaking of other individuals, you're playing on a line now. It's the end of October with Steve Eiserman and Ron Duguay. We touched on yes. Steve Eiserman. I know you guys were a few years difference in age. What about Ron Duguay? What can you tell us about Ron? I enjoyed playing with Dukes. You know, Dukes had speed, and Dukes set me up quite a bit. You know what? He would uh, he'd work hard and whatever, and he had a pretty decent shot. And um, I don't know what his numbers were, what, you know, as far as goal scoring. I think he had a good year in New York, but... Um, Duke saw the ice pretty well. He had very good speed. He played hard. You know, he get in a fight once in a while, but that really wasn't his game. But uh, he was a good, uh, good right winger. He saw the ice very well, and uh, he, like you know, like I said, he did set me up quite a few times. You know, he'd grind it out along the boards and boom, work it out. And man, he always see through it to me. You know, a lot most of the time, and he didn't mind doing that. You know, he's tall, good skater, quick. Strong, whatever you know, what I'm saying we compliment, we compliment each, you know. I mean, that worked out pretty well. Then you know what? I run into him when we go to New York for some alumni events. I run into him, and uh, you know, Duke is a couple of years younger than me or older than me, and uh, one or two years, anyways. And he looks fantastic. Yeah, he really does. He's in great shape and takes good care of himself. At this time, were you and Ron close off the ice? I, I would assume you and Steve, with the age difference, probably didn't see a lot of a lot of each other. Or, or were you the type of guy that just you know, kind of hung out more with your family. I know you had a daughter that was just born around this time. I mean, you had a couple groups that were kind of close. Uh, you know, Stevie was pretty quiet. Uh, Ron Duguay was very quiet. I was pretty quiet. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> we didn't really, you know, I'm trying to say. I get it. Uh, you know, and, and you know, you got families and stuff like that. And you got kids at home and stuff like that. So it's, uh, and then you got other guys that are single, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, they're going to do more with the single guys and stuff like that than they are the married guys with families and stuff like that. But like I said, you know, when you go on the road and stuff like that, everybody gets together. You have team, you know, you'll have a team meal or four or five or six guys together. They go out and have dinner together and stuff like that. So, yeah. On October 30th yeah. of that year, you finish up the month. Uh, the Red Wings finish out the month playing against the Pittsburgh Penguins. And this is your first opportunity to see a young rookie named Mario Lemieux. We touched on it before. You said you definitely remember him. What do you remember about Mario during his early years? You know, I wouldn't remember what he was like when I first saw him. I just know as time went on. I mean, you know, the, the guy was just a big man. He saw the ice very well, protected the puck very well, anticipated well. A lot of things that Gretzky could do also, anticipate and whatever. And he just had a very strong, powerful, long stride. And he could get up the ice pretty good, but... Um, you know, just with his skill level and his size and a good skater, and he st he obviously stood out. He could do stuff, you know, hold guys off. You know, he could do stuff with his size and strength and um, almost do things at will, it seemed like, if he wanted to. <laughs> Absolutely. So going through November, the slump kind of continues into December. You The team is 6-14-3, but things start to turn around in December. You guys have an unbelievable game against Toronto and score five goals in the third period, you end up having a hat-trick during this game. Are there any games where you had big goal games that stick out to you throughout your career? 
No, not really. Okay. Um, you know, the, but you know, probably the only one was when I had the hat trick in Edmonton and, and scored my fiftieth. You know, that's about it. You know, then sure. you, uh, you know, you remember scoring your first goal. I believe it was against Zero Malash against Minnesota. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's what that was. Rounding out the year, the Red Wings travel up to Calgary, and Lane Lambert leads the team. We've touched on him a little bit. Michigan was somewhat of a central location, but how grueling was the travel during the '80s? Were you guys still flying commercially at the time? Yeah, yeah, we were flying commercial. Uh, but what we did sometimes, though, we would charter out of Windsor, Ontario, and it would be a prop plane, Air Ontario, I believe it was called. So we would charter with a prop plane once in a while, not on long trips to like LA or anything like that, but sure. you know, maybe uh, you know, to Toronto, Chicago, whatever. You know, when I first started, you know, that's when we still allowed smoking on the plane. <laughs> yeah, oh my first gosh! Started, and then they what they and then what they did was they allowed they only allowed smoking in the back ten rows, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and then he got stuck sitting back there. And it was like, oh, travel wasn't bad in Michigan. The travel was a lot easier. It was a lot easier in New York. I'm sure. End of December, you are considered for NHL Player of the Month due to your you're getting hot around this point. And by mid January, you're at the halfway point of the season. You're leading the team with 27 goals. We talked a little bit earlier about the Philadelphia Flyers, and on January 17th, you guys lose to them, but you end up scoring your 30th goal of the year. But in net for the Flyers was Pele Lindbergh. I never yeah. saw Pele play. That was right around the time I was born. I've heard that Pele was one of the greats, and if he had not passed away, he would have been unbelievable. What was your opinion on Pele? Do you think 30 years later, if he hadn't passed away, we'd be talking about him in the same light as a Martin Brodeur or a Patrick Waugh? No, you probably would have. You know, I mean, the only difference is, I believe, I don't know how many times, I forget how the schedule was set up, and I don't know how many times we actually played Philadelphia. Only a couple that year. Yeah, yeah. only a couple times, yeah. But he was, you know, I remember, yeah, he was good. He was pretty, very agile on his feet and, you know, moving around and uh, acrobatic and made some great saves. And uh, I guess, that, you know, what I can say is, yeah, he was probably one of the more elite goaltenders of that time. There's no question about it. It was a smaller league back then, and teams saw each other much more, just like you said a few minutes ago. As a goal scorer, mm -hmm. over time, do you develop strategies for certain goalies? Not really. I think for the most part, not for the goalies. I mean, you know, I used to keep a, you know, I used to set goals for myself, so I'd look at the, say, the calendar for the month, month of December, and, you know, if I were for playing Toronto... You know, and Toronto wasn't very strong. You know, I'd say, geez, I got to get a couple here. There's no question about it. And I got to get, you know, something else. I got to get, you know, one or two or three in this game. And then a uh, game in Montreal, I'd be like, I'm lucky if I get one or two shots on that. <laughs> <laughs> they were stacked, man. Montreal they... was so good defensively. And yeah. Houston, there was no room and whatever. And for some of the goal centers now, not really. You know, at most of the time, you really don't aim. I mean, the whole idea is, unless you had a breakaway or something like that, but the whole idea was you want to release your shot as quick as possible. And what that does is it doesn't give the goaltender time to get into position or set up properly. If you take that extra second to release it, then it gives the goaltender time to play the angles and whatever. So, no, I just want to make sure I hit the net, let the shot go as quick as possible. I did practice a lot after practice, going down the wing and taking slap shots from the top of the circle, aiming low stick side um, all the time. All the time. Um, that was your bread and butter. That was a bread and butter because my generation, there was more stand-up goaltenders. Yep. They'd always come out and play the angle on you and stuff like that. And um, 
You know, we had smaller pads, and don't get me wrong, the goaltenders were good, and, but in today's game, the pads are huge, and now these guys are so tall, and the way the you know pads are shaped, I mean, these guys can do a butterfly and cover, you know, post to post, um, right. you know. And I'll give you an example, and I know we're getting off subject, but when I was with the Nordiques, both Michelle Goulet and I had, uh, I believe, nine, nine goals in 13 games in the playoffs, and the losing at seven in Montreal, but... Um, First two games in Montreal, we won. We beat Montreal, and uh, it was easier—not easier, but you know, there was more scoring chances, more whatever, because you are playing on a much better team. You know, we had the Stashney brothers, we had Michelle Goulet and Dale Hunter, uh, Jason Lafreniere was my for Lane Lambert, and Jason was a very good playmaker. And the um, so to come back for complacent, we get blown out in game three, game four, we go into overtime. I go down the wing and I let a shot go low, fixed side. And I believe, you know, you might have to check this, but it was Patrick one. He just started doing the butterfly, and I just said, "How the fuck did he stop that?" Was, exactly. You know, you're like, you're like, what do you do? Yeah, no, this toe came out, and he did the butterfly, and he just let it hit his toe and stuff like that. And um, I believe a short time thereafter, Matt Maslin went the other way, took a slap shot from outside the blue line, and you know, Blea beat our goaltender Goose Gosselin uh, between the legs and kind of going back to Montreal game, uh, tied two games apiece but point being is low stick side you know what I'm saying but all of a sudden Patrick Watt stops us you know by doing the butterfly and um, a couple of years after I retired or I was out of the game if I was practicing my shot after practice I'd be going down the wing and shooting everything high right. everything high even to this day everything's got to be high it's funny that I so, feel Patrick Wall was the one that that kind of and then Martin Broder followed that changed the way goaltenders yeah. played. You know, you had Hextall behind the net who would flick the puck, but but you're right, you would always go low stick side or, or and that was yeah. kind of your hole. And uh, now it, I mean, they they figured out how to counteract that. We talked about Pelly Lindbergh going through January, early February. It's announced that 27 of the 30 hockey writers for the All Star Game vote you as a first team All Star, and this this was not your first all-star game, but I think this was the first game you started in. You know, a lot of guys today don't want to go to these all-star games. They say it's a headache. They'd rather have the weekend off. What was an all-star game like in the 80s? Yeah, they were fun and stuff like that. And what made that one different was you're voted on. You mm-hmm. know, in the other all-star games, each team had they played and each team had to be represented by one player. It was nice, but I've always said that, you know, People talk about your career and stuff like that. And I always said that you continue to appreciate your accomplishments. I'm sorry. Yeah. You, you just, you know, because when you're playing the game, I don't want to say it was, it wasn't easy. Don't get me wrong. You had to work hard. But when your confidence was high, you just never thought of it as being a big deal. You know what I'm trying to say? Right. I mean, you know, you're, you're happy, whatever and whatever. But then, you know, after you've been out of the game for a long time or, you know, whatever and, you know, then you look back and we tend to appreciate your accomplishments a lot more. When you're in the zone and when you're in living it, you don't realize what you've done until afterwards. Because at the time, it's just normal. This is every day. Yeah, exactly. You got it. How competitive did these All-Star games actually get back then? Not very. After the All-Star Not game, uh, the Wings play the Minnesota yeah. North Stars and the game ends with a 5-5 time. This game was filled with brawls. And and I'm just curious, in your career, were there any games that stuck out to you known for the for the fisticuffs? And I know you weren't a big fighter, but maybe stuff that you witnessed. Well, there was a few. I mean, it, I know when I first got called out, a guy by the name of John Hillworth came up with, was coming up with me also when he was our enforcer. Mm-hmm. Big tall guy from Alberta, lefty. And uh, we end up getting a, into a five-man tussle, five-player tussle, or, you know, both lines. You know, everybody's paired up. 
but I felt bad for, um, you know, John Hillworth because Philadelphia had this guy, Ben Wilson. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Ben kind of got the better of him. So you never want to see somebody get them that one-sided, if you know what I'm trying to say. Um, I get it. You know, and then there was times where, you know, Prober would get in a fight. You know, he'd go forever. But, you know, I still remember the one, uh, Donnie Jackson, with Edmonton. I don't know why. I think Donnie was a heavyweight, uh, but he ended up fighting with Joey Kosher to the left of our bench. And um, Joey wouldn't throw a, a lot of punches. You know, he'd reach back and he'd throw, you know, and he just he probably had a sledgehammer. Yeah. And unfortunately, unfortunately, he hit the helmet a lot and uh, really damaged his knuckles and stuff like that. But he'd stun guys anyways if he hit the helmet. But uh, he caught Donnie Jackson right below the uh, eye. And I remember that Donnie was knocked out. He went down like a wilted flower and he kind oh of felt bad for him and stuff like that. And, uh, and I could be, you know, I'm, I'm almost certain, but uh, I saw him years later as an assistant coach and I thought his one eye was actually lower than the other one. I think uh, a bit of fractures is what, what do they call it, the orbital bone or something Yeah, like the that. orbital bone right there, yeah. Yes, you remember that. And then I think the fight you were talking about, the little melee, uh, was against, against Minnesota. Uh-huh. And I believe Danny Gare and uh, Dino Cicerelli was a heck of a fight. I mean, these two, you know, they're not real tall guys, but both are very quick and strong and good, decent fighters. And, man, they were just going from bench to bench. And it was very quick wrestling, getting up, you know what I'm saying? And we're all paired off. And um, if this is the same fight, you know, Tiger Williams was paired off with Jeff from Minnesota. He went MIA a few times from McCart- McCarty? McCarthy or something like that. So, um, you know, we're all paired up. And all of a sudden I look down and I see... You know, Tom, I think it was Tom, it's his first name, but uh, he's on his knees and his nose is just bleeding like crazy. And he's slowly trying to crawl between the legs of everybody to get to the bench. And I remember Tagger telling me afterwards, or Donis or whatever, and he said, uh, Tom, he said, Tom, listen, I got to get in here. He said, you might want to let go. And uh, he wouldn't let go. He said, Tom, I don't want to, I got to get into this. I know you're not a fighter. So I guess he wouldn't let go. And I didn't see it. But how's to hit him with one? (laughs) I didn't laugh, but he's crawling on his knees and blood gushing out of his nose. Oh, God. When you pair off with somebody like that, are you watching everything or are you kind of focused more on watching your own back? You know, everybody's paired up. It's different than junior hockey. Mm -hmm. I mean, junior hockey, the the NHL, there's a lot more respect. I mean, Mm -hmm. Like Tiger. Tiger's not going to fight somebody that he knows is a fighter. You know what I'm saying? Right. You know, you get that in the NHL. You know, in the juniors, you know, that's where you really had to watch your back. Because there was, you know, I played for the New Westminster Bruins. And, um, you know, we always had big teams. And uh, intimidation was a big part of the game. And uh, I can't tell you how many brawls we had. Oh, my God. I can't And it's everybody imagine. out for themselves. Yeah. And everybody for this, out for themselves. And it's just, you never know if somebody's going to skate by and suck a bench or something like that, you know. The Red Wings continue to improve. You play the the Vancouver Canucks and the Detroit Free Press. It's reported that there's a rumor that a deal might be in the works for you that might send you to Winnipeg. This was around the trade deadline. Did you ever, you talked about this early in the interview, your name was constantly bounced around trade rumors. When that happens, are you able to go talk to somebody or do you just have to deal with it? I don't even think of it. So this was the 84-85 season? Yeah, there was some talk about two draft picks uh, that they were requesting two first-round picks for you. The Washington Capitals showed some interest. Also, Pat LaFontaine's name was tossed around. I, I just was curious how you deal with trade rumors when you I, hear you know, about I don't it. Even, I, honestly, I didn't hear about that. I, I did not even know about that. No, that makes sense then. March 9th, you score uh, in this game to become only the seventh player to reach 200 goals in, on the Red Wings history. Joey Colser also plays in his first game. We talked about how tough Joey was. Just real quick, 
Joey always a tough guy or did that come with age? No, he was always tough. We'll leave it at that. Around this time, your line is broken up and you're moved on to a line playing with Kelly Kissio and Danny Gare. After playing all year with Iserman and Duguay, is it hard when lines get mixed up? Does that mess with your chemistry at all? It can and it can't. Okay, mm-hmm. if there's not a lot of chemistry with the line you're on, it's good to shake things up, okay? And, you know, play with, you know, in other words, no, it doesn't. Because if, if the line's not performing well and you over change you know, X amount of time or whatever, you just kind of shake things up and try different. And sometimes it's refreshing just to play with somebody different. You know what I'm trying to say? Absolutely. Shortly after the change, the Wings are in Edmonton to play the Oilers, where you score a hat trick and hit 50 goals for the first time in your career. I know you're from that area, or at least live there in the off season. Can you take us back to that evening and how special it was for you? Well, it was good, and, and this is where I'm a little confused because I'm almost certain that Boulder set me up for a couple of those goals. I know he set me up for the one. Uh, I think when I got my 50th, I could be wrong. Maybe it was on the power plane. That's why Boulder was up. I can't figure it out. But anyways, I felt confident I would take get 50. Just didn't know when or where or whatever. And um, yeah, again, it's nice, but you, you know, you don't remember. Really appreciate it until you know you've been out of the room for a while you know just part of the game you know what i'm trying to say absolutely and, and i think uh, you had a lot of family there that night as well didn't you yeah, family was first in the room and with family and all that and then we went back to my president his wife's place afterwards and uh, talked about it stuff like that and, I mean, it, it was it was pretty it was very good yeah very exciting in front of 16,630 Red Wings fans on March 29th, you score your 53rd and 54th goal against the Minnesota North Stars and break Mickey Redmond's goal record. Let's rewind time. Well, you talked about the organization doing something nice for your 50th. Did they do anything for you for breaking Mickey Redmond's record? No, no. Okay. Believe me, the 50, uh, 50 goal uh, thing was uh, more than that. When I was, uh, and then when I was moving in first time, so you know, Mr. and Mrs. Elch gave me a Rolex watch and was engraved on the back. Oh, that's and awesome. Stuff like that, which was very nice, yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Like I said, you know, that was nice because that was done at home and I got a nice kind of innovation for that, so that was very nice. And the Red Wings octopus also came out that night, which I'm sure you saw multiple times over your career. Mm-hmm. The Wings end up finishing the season going 2-2-1 two, two, and one, and make the playoffs. You're going to end up playing against Chicago. And, you know, we touched on Denny Savard before. Do you have any, do you remember this playoff series at all? It ended up being a 3-0 sweep for Chicago. So are there any memories that stick out from that playoff series? No, not really. Okay. At the end of the season, the team packs up and the Red Wings are definitely clearly on to building something, but you ended up finishing this season with 55 goals tied for fourth in the league or fifth in the league. Excuse me. You and Michelle Goulet from Quebec had both 55 goals. Before we go, tell everyone what you're up to now. If, if people want to, you know, follow you or, or check out the Detroit Red Wings alumni, where can they do that? Well, the Red Wings alumni is the Red Wings. Tonight. So, you know, and uh, we play, actually, we have a game tonight. We're going to play um, Birmingham Police Department charity event tonight. And uh, so it's weird second game. So, uh, yeah, we're playing about 20 charity hockey games and, um, and right now I'm a financial advisor with Prudential here in uh, Michigan, just outside of Detroit. Um, just, you know, yeah, Metropolitan Detroit, let's just say. I want to thank John again for coming on. Really enjoyed hearing some of those old school Detroit Red Wings stories, especially about the Ilch family. How awesome are they? They gave him a Rolex. They gave him a bunch of cash. Talk about generous, nice people. And it still doesn't sound like they've changed. Everybody I talk to says the Ilch family is as nice as can be. I have a friend of mine up in uh, Detroit that knows him on a personal level and has nothing but glowing things to say about them. 
Meanwhile, that's all I've got this week for Snapshots in Hockey History. We're going to go ahead and sign off. Forewarning, I'm going to be traveling the next few weeks, so we might miss a week or two of episodes, but I do have a few banks, so I'm going to try to keep this going as much as I can, but I've got to travel for my real job. Appreciate all the support. Appreciate all the messages on Facebook. Once again, if you want to help us out, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Also, if there's somebody you'd like to hear on this podcast, shoot me an email. Shoot me a message on Facebook on our Facebook page at Snapshots in Hockey History. We'll see what we can do. We'll see if we can get them on here. All right. Have a great week and thanks for tuning in.